Okay, can we just stop for a second? Where the hell is Paul Manafort buying rugs if he is spending a million dollars on rugs? You guys don't have a million dollars of rugs in your houses? <laughs> I know a bargain place to get rugs. I should let him know where it is. Okay, can I just say, I was born in Turkey. I learned to bargain in Turkey, okay? I know a lot about rugs from the Middle East. I don't understand how you spend a million dollars on rugs outside of like a Sotheby's auction. <laughs> this is what Paul Manafort was missing. He needed Tammy's advice oh, on how to bargain. How to, how to I, haggle, man. I also want to point out that if he was spending that kind of money on clothes, he should have looked better. Yeah, they like didn't fit quite right. And, and by the way, Indochino is not sponsoring this podcast. <laughs> no. But, I'm, but I, I'm just saying like he could have looked as good with a... You yeah. know, online Indochino suit. You can definitely get an Indochino suit for less than a million dollars. Hint, hint. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the million dollars in rugs edition. I'm Shane Harris, bargain shopping reporter. I have some nice rugs, y'all. I can tell you get, get some How nice m- rugs. And, and the sum total of the value of those rugs... What do they cost? Oh, the sum total of the best rugs we have, like maybe like $3,000. All the rugs. Yeah. <laughs> right. I have an Iranian rug, Persian rug from Iran that came in, I think, you know, maybe sometime before or after sanctions. I'm sure it was here in the country legally when I bought it. It's a glorious rug that we got for like a thousand bucks. It's amazing. My well, parents have given us all these like really beautiful rugs. And now there's just like chocolate milk and you know, like goldfish dust ground into them. That's what rugs are for. That has the patina. I I would like to give kudos to uh, Slate reporter Aaron Mock, who went out to report the question all of us have been asking. The headline is, I spent my day trying to figure out how to spend nearly $1 million on rugs. And he found like the three rug dealers in Alexandria who all told him it's basically impossible to spend that much on rugs. Oh, wow. If you're Poor missing Paul the- Manafort, you know, <laughs> getting ripped off uh, time and time again. Uh, I'm here with my good friends, Tamar Goffman, Wittis, Ben Wittis, and Susan Hennessy. Hi, guys. Hey. hey. If, if you're missing the reference, then you have not read uh, the special counsel's indictment of our friend Paul Manafort, uh, along with uh, uh, Rick Gates. I think Manafort was the one spending a million dollars on rugs. Also, uh, a lot of money on suits, home repair. Uh, what were some of the other things? Uh, Apartments just- in New York. Can, Apartments can, in New York. Can I just say... Construction. Like, home repair is a is a funny euphemism mm-hmm. for what he must have been doing to be spending that kind yeah. of money on it. It's not like, you know... Like gold leafing. <laughs> Although I certainly know some home contractors who would give him a million dollar yeah. estimate. But they, sell him a rug. There too. was, according to uh, the indictment, $75 million passing through his offshore uh, uh, bank accounts. Uh, that's a lot of rugs. That's a lot of rugs. 18 million of it was like laundered money for him. I mean, look, I'm sure that that if the four of us put our minds together, we could find a way to spend $18 million, but it would take a while. Now, now, Susan, I just have a question. Do you spend one-eighteenth of your ill-gotten laundered money on rugs? Sure. Furs, diamonds, uh, no, no, uh, rugs in spend, particular. I, I don't know who's financing your baby cannon collection. <laughs> I think it's the question everybody's asking. It is important. I'll just say that we'll if I that had $18 million dollars in ill-gotten busted. gains to spend, I would be on an island in Tahiti. I would not be in a condo in Alexandria. Or right. working for Donald Trump's campaign for free. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, well, we're going to talk about that indictment as well as the surprise plea bargain uh, involving George Papadopoulos, a one-time foreign policy advisor. Who's got a lot of syllables in that name. Papadopoulos. Can I tell you, by the way, the number of times that I misspelled Papadopoulos? Oh, my God. It's yes. driving me bananas. Oh, now. Come on, folks. I don't, I don't know how to spell you it. You know how to spell Brzezinski? I how hard I'm is Papadopoulos? Sure I, do. I, just, I don't know. Got a, I got a mental block. I'm like Papadopoulos. Yeah. Because there's so many different ways to misspell it. Yes, they're really. Like, and they all look the correct. A or the O U. It's. Yeah, like I think it's incumbent on us to just up our ethnic spelling game. All right. I'm just. I'm. I'm just saying that you know, if you go, if your if your name is George Papadopoulos and you come out of nowhere. As the surprise new witness in a Russian uh, collusion matter, and you know most people have never heard of you before, except as a character on Webster, right? And uh, a lot of people are going to misspell your name. That's mm. true. This is what copy editors are for. for. Do you think the Mueller way. was just like giggling all weekend long as he like watched all the floor and was just like, "Oh, you people don't even." know. I can't imagine Bob Mueller giggling. <laughs> just like can you? That. Yeah, I kind of can. <laughs> you can. Like I'm also just imagining office, not a, not a Also, the timing of this, by the way, which I mean, we now know, like you know, the first indictments came out in the morning, and Trump tweeted, and then 45 the minutes later, thing. this one drops. Yeah. That that does not seem at all accidental. It's quite coordinated and rather theatrical. I think, so I'm imagining him giggling. Yes. I think we should get Garrett Graff on the phone mm -hmm. and ask him the question: <laughs> Do you think Bob Mueller? But Garrett is a fr fr say. friend of Shane and mine, who, uh, among other things, is is the closest thing to a Mueller biographer that there is. We should get him on the phone and ask him the question: Was Mueller uh, giggling over the weekend? I think he's going to say maybe giggling on the inside. That might be Garrett Graff. Hello? I'm only willing to participate if Shane asks all of the questions in a Russian accent. <laughs> then I begin here. <laughs> Garrett, my good friend. <laughs> I sound like a vampire. <laughs> it's a little Halloween for you. It's a little Transylvania. Let's talk about Paul Manafort. Um, no, Garrett, uh, thank you for calling in and doing this. Um, Garrett, you know me to be quite the giggler and the cackler. Do you think that Bob Mueller is also giggling as he uh, as he issues the Paul Manafort indictment and everyone, including the President of the United States, says, no collusion here, and then 45 minutes later drops the Papadopoulos plea um, we imagine Bob Mueller just sitting back and smiling and uh, tenting his fingers and giggling and saying, excellent. What do you think? Uh, so I, I think uh, as delicious as that was uh, for those who were sort of waiting for Donald Trump to fall into Bob Mueller's trap, I think it probably had nothing to do with Bob Mueller, although I think it was probably uh, precisely what Andrew Weissman, his deputy, the former head of the Enron Task Force, uh, and sort of his legal pit bull on this case probably was hoping. Andrew is the one on the team with a touch for the dramatic. Do you know Bob Mueller to be a giggler? I would not describe Bob Mueller <laughs> as a giggler. That Thank, is you. Not one of the Thank you. Thank you. But do you at least uh, think he's enjoying himself right now? Uh, I, 
I think that Bob Mueller is never happier than when he's working a big case and is chewing over meaty subjects. So insofar as that is happening, he is, uh, I think, enjoying this. I mean, I think that sort of the one of the the stories about Bob Mueller that I think is the quintessential to understanding him is remember when he was head of the criminal division under George H.W. Bush at the Justice Department, the Assistant Attorney General for the Criminal Division, and left, he only spent about a year in private practice before he got so fed up that he called Eric Holder, then the U.S. Attorney for the District of Columbia, and asked to come back as a line prosecutor in the Homicide Division. It's sort of roughly the equivalent of a two-star general retiring and then re-enlisting as a second lieutenant. And uh, this is, uh, you know, this is sort of Bob Mueller's uh, re-enlisting yet again and probably enjoying himself quite a bit. Thanks, Garrett. My pleasure. Talk to you soon. Bye, Garrett. Thanks. All right. Well, I'm still going to imagine Bob Mueller at least skipping down the hallway of DOJ. With a with a thin smile, <gasps> just the, the the curves of the of the lips a little bit. Um, let's first start. We're going to talk about the indictments. We're also going to talk about sort of our reactions, and then also where this takes us next in the investigation. Uh, and in the third segment, we're going to talk about uh, the terrorist attack in New York that occurred uh, last night on Halloween. We're recording this on Wednesday. Um, first, let's just, I just want to go around and kind of get everyone's. You know, initial reactions to, and we're talking about this already, and we'll move beyond rugs now, but Ben, let me start with you. I mean, the nobody was expecting the George Papadopoulos plea agreement, so there's obviously the element of surprise uh, there and raises all kinds of new questions, too. Maybe we'll talk about more of those in the second segment, but what's your just your general gut reaction first to this long-anticipated event when finally we would see some indictment coming out of the special counsel? Well... I mean, I guess the first thing is uh, in the uh, days before the Manafort indictment came out, I was telling off the record anyone who would listen, including you, Shane, that I thought the likelihood that if the indictment was of Manafort, the likelihood was very strong that it was going to contain some dramatic allegations. And the reason for that was that the no-knock warrant that was executed against his house uh, is not consistent with a normal white-collar criminal investigation. It's kind of only consistent with something much more substantial and dramatic than that. So I was not surprised that the allegations against Manafort were extremely serious. Um, I was completely surprised about two things. One was the dramatic nature of the uh, criminality alleged against Manafort, which is, and Gates, which is, you know, not, which was beyond even what I was expecting, frankly. And uh, in particular was described in the indictment with a degree of forensic detail that is frankly awesome. Yeah. You go through those pages and you see the number of accounts that they found and you know, you're kind of slack-jawed at it. Right. I wasn't. Well, and which is not only impressive in terms of the the investigatory effectiveness, but also impressive in the level of effort that Manafort went to to hide all this money. Right. And so, you know, you're talking about 
Uh, and an indictment is always the tip of the iceberg because it's not the evidence. It's merely what the government purports to be going to prove, right? And so this is a, this is a window into an investigation that has been active for some time. Uh, and has been conducted at an extraordinarily high level of energy and sophistication and and commitment and seriousness, both when it before Mueller and under Mueller, and uh, and I think you saw a window into that. And frankly, that the degree of that took me by surprise, and I. I'm certain it was noticed in the white collar defense bar and in the White House as well. I, you know, just as a, uh, as a, you know, what are we dealing with here? The second thing that was uh, completely surprising was George Papadopoulos, and you know, he had shown up in a couple of uh, news stories from the Washington Post some time back. But uh, you know, if that story had broken as a news story rather than as an indictment. It would have been considered the ultimate bombshell evidence of collusion. It would have been considered to dispositively answer the question uh, because here is a guy who is actively colluding, actively interfacing with people he knows to be Russian agents, and then briefing Donald Trump about it. Um, and this is the and kind of bragging about it too. Yeah, saying, this he, is the value I can add to the campaign. Yeah, and he shows up in a meeting <clears throat> with Donald Trump and announces this, and you know, uh, and so you know, all of this is in a period uh, mere weeks and months before the Russians then start dumping emails in uh, in support of Trump's campaign, and so I'm. Uh, I, you know, I do think the sum total of the two is a is a is a pretty awesome statement of how advanced the investigation is, and also how exposed uh, the Trump campaign is, at least to major political embarrassment over its interactions with Russia, but you know, maybe other things as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I had, like, largely the same reaction of just Jesus Christ, like, the scope of all of this. Um, I think a little bit it's surprising. I mean, because the Papadopoulos stuff was so dramatic and unexpected, it kind of swallowed up some of the Manafort impact, which beyond just sort of the scope, the sheer amounts of money, the rugs and the suits and whatever else, you know, um, this is a, a an allegation that Donald Trump's campaign manager was an unregistered foreign agent at the time he was running Donald Trump's political campaign, right? So this is like, this alone is just like earth shattering. It really does reflect on the fundamental judgment of Trump and the people he sort of puts around him. You know, it's also, um, it's it's just going to be the first story. So already we're seeing things start to come out, right? So um, reportedly Manafort has three or four different passports with different numbers. There's now reporting that he recently traveled to China and Ecuador using sort of a fake name on a cell phone and fake email addresses. I mean, there's all kinds of hints here of like there's something really, really crazy going on. On the Papadopoulos front, you know, this is something I, I think we actually talked about on the podcast sort of way back um, during the campaign. And this was whenever sort of Trump, uh, whenever it was in, in connection to Carter Page. But whenever Trump was sort of under pressure, hey, you know, come up with these foreign policy advisors, all these people had signed these letters saying, you know, we'll never advise Donald Trump. 
And he comes up with this list of names of, of basically unknown people. And then it turns out that Carter Page is like shows up in Moscow and is sort of sh- this shady weirdo. Um, you know, we had talked about the fact that when uh, a presidential candidate and a later a president gives that kind of apparent authority to somebody, uses their name to say, this person is now affiliated with me, he then opens himself up to exactly this kind of stuff, right? So even if, you know, sort of, I think it's probably less likely that these people are 100% acting on their own with no sort of support from the campaign. I mean, the, the indictment alone sort of indicates that's not the case. But even if they are, even if it's just somebody that Trump names who then decides to freelance because he's the one bad apple in this otherwise, you know, uh, amazingly patriotic law abiding group, it actually is still uh, a huge scandal for Donald Trump because it shows the way his recklessness, his lack of sort of care with the facts and with building a reasonable team opens up the United States of America at this point to serious national security risks. This, this I think this is a patriotic group that is also meeting in Trump Tower with Natalia Vetselnitskaya about, uh, about uh, because they think they're going to get dirt as well, right? Look, I, I think Susan put her finger on the fundamental political challenge posed by these indictments for the president. Um, there is a lot of sort of chatter in the commentariat about, well, we knew Manafort was a slime ball and, well, we knew Papadopoulos was unqualified. And so what's the big deal here? But the big deal here is that we had a presidential candidate and a campaign that simply did not care enough to um, take any basic uh, care around the people that they were affiliating themselves with, the people on whom they were relying, um, the carelessness and slapdashery of the campaign has clearly carried over into the presidency in the way that they try to exercise policy when they bother to try to exercise policy. Um, It's done with carelessness and slapdashery and with negative consequences. And both in the campaign and in the presidency, that has consequences for the country as a whole. And and so it's offensive to the public trust in both instances. And I think that's the kind of political import. Unfortunately, I don't think that 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 realization is coming through in all this coverage so far. I mean, one of the things that's just incredible, and you can see sort of Sessions and others trying to say, oh, no, no, we tried to shut this down right away. We said this was a bad idea. It's pretty clear that large numbers of people, you know, sort of connected to the campaign were aware that uh, individuals uh, affiliated with Russia were saying they had these illegally obtained emails. It, It appears to have never occurred to anyone any point to pick up the phone and call the FBI. In- including the guy who is now the chief law enforcement officer well, in the I, country. <laughs> right? I mean, that alone is just so Can I jump in there? Me. Because this is <clears throat> and this is something that stuck out to me having read, especially the Papadopoulos plea, and I wrote a story about this today for the paper. The question exactly is, well, why weren't they picking up the phone and alerting someone? I think if you step back and you mesh this event and line up the dots with what we know Papadopoulos was doing at the same time, in the same time period of the spring and into the summer of 2016, what else do we know is happening? 
the meeting on June, June of 2016 at Trump Tower. The, the Russia efforts, hack of the DNC, which the Russia hack of the DNC, spring. which clearly began now... Began a year earlier. Which, well, yeah. but also but the, the hack of John Podesta's emails, which began one month before Papadopoulos meets with this man, Joseph exactly. Mifsud, referred to as the professor. So Papadopoulos may be getting the first early tip that there was some kind of activity because the professor talks about the Russians having thousands of emails and dirt on Clinton. The work of Peter Smith... Uh, who was certainly a supporter of the campaign, if not directly allied and coordinating with it, although he repeatedly, as we've talked about on the show before, uh, invoked Michael Flynn, the national security advisor to the campaign, as an ally. These things are all happening concurrently. That's a pattern of activity that shows that the campaign, at the very least, is receptive to the idea, and its proxies are as well, and its supporters, of obtaining this information from the Russian government. That's at the least. That's all we know yet. My question is whether or not this is actually pointing towards a far more coordinated strategy. So I actually don't think it's concurrent. I think there's a sequence, and it tells a story. And I think if you're looking at this from an intelligence point of view, the story is is important. First, the Russians do what every foreign intelligence organization worth its salt would do, including ours, by the way. They hack the political parties and the campaigns, or they try to, and they collect what they can collect. And that's consistent with, you know, our surveillance, for example, of Angela Merkel, uh, which I'm certainly not asking Susan to to comment on. Um, I have uh, no idea what you're talking about. um, You know, that's what, what... countries do uh, with foreign political entities. Uh, So they collect all this stuff. Then there is this six to eight month period of time in which the Russians are reaching out to all kinds of Trump connected people, uh, uh, to the Trump organization about possible business, to low grade staffers like George Papadopoulos, to higher grade staffers like uh, the president's son, um, you know, and they're setting up, the, they're probing these meetings. During this time, Trump and Putin are also making nice to each other in public. And there's an assessment going on in Moscow. Do we want to use this material that we've collected in support of this group of people? Do we want to weaponize it in their favor? In the spring of 2016, there is a decision to do that. And that results in the systematic release of this information. And so I think you're, you know, the, the, the sequence of events is it's not all going on concurrently. There's actually a story here where an intelligence organization collects material and then it decides, do we want to do this unprecedented thing and release it into the campaign? And they decide they do. And there's a there's a relationship, I believe, between this string of probes and that assessment that is going on in Moscow over this period of time. I mean, I think that's right. One of the things that's so remarkable, sort of just taking a moment to look back over all the information that, that has come out in the past you know, sort of year, everything is consistent. Usually whenever you have these kinds of sprawling investigations, you know, and, and, and lots of different media coverages, there, there are pieces that don't fit. There are players that are working for their own interests, right? Like things don't quite fit together to form this neat, tidy narrative. But I'm sitting here trying to come up with like, okay, what's like the one piece that makes it, that, that says, okay, no, 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 like this, this piece doesn't fit, but what about, and I have to it's say- It's one like, of those rugs. Exactly. <laughs> Just, it ties the whole room together. <laughs> 
<laughs> like I can't even come up with like with what like which is the story, which is the piece here that's hanging out that doesn't fit with this beautifully wrapped up narrative that that Mueller is now prepared to sort of present to the court. Well, along those lines, then let's pivot and talk about so where does this go next? And we can talk about both where we think Mueller is heading with this story, because I think that it seems pretty clear if he doesn't know what the whole narrative looks like, he knows a lot more about the narrative than we in the press and in the public know, right? So we have to presume that as a starting point. Um, But also, what can we learn from the indictments and from the plea agreement about the methods he's using and who the key people to focus in on might be. So, Ben, why don't you start with that? I mean, where this is going and what we can kind of infer or presume based on what we've seen about how Mueller is conducting this investigation based on these documents that were released this week. Okay. The first thing I want to tell all of our listeners, because some of you may someday get wrapped up in an investigation, um, and it happens, you know, and when the FBI shows up at your door and they want to interview about you about something, it may seem like you're at an initial stage of an investigation. There's some little lie you can tell that'll get yourself out of trouble and it won't be a big a deal to them. Don't do it. Tell the FBI the truth because they will hunt you to the ends of the earth <laughs> over that lie. Never they, lie to the FBI. You know, anonymous, anonymous's great slogan, we do not forgive, we do not forget, expect us. Mm-hmm. That is the way the Bureau responds to 1001 violations, 18 U.S.C. 1001. So it may feel like there's this little exculpatory lie that you can tell, like, no, I met the professor before I was associated with the Trump campaign, when actually you met him afterwards, you're going to go to prison if you do that. Um, They will make sure of it. And so the most important thing in this document to me, other than the facts that it alleged uh, about the, the collusion, is that Papadopoulos was interviewed by the FBI in January. And that's consistent with my point earlier that this investigation has been active and very professional for a long time, and it's it's older than Mueller. And so the FBI comes around and they do a string of interviews in January and probably in December and, and February. There's this period of time early before it's really in the in the public consciousness. Now, in the, that situation, at least one person did not tell the truth. My hypothesis is that George Papadopoulos may not have been the only person who was not completely candid with the Bureau in that setting when the fear of God was, was not on everybody. I expect based on that hypothesis, that maybe he's not the only person who either has faced a reckoning over statements made to the Bureau in that period or will face a reckoning in the, in the relatively near future over false statements to the Bureau. Uh, so to me, the most interesting question active now is who else was interviewed in that period of time and have they vanished from public life? 
which would be a sign that they are having trouble with law enforcement. Hmm. Look, there is this other sort of looming question, and that's um, uh, the... Uh, Papadopoulos uh, plea materials uh, refer to his ability to serve as a proactive cooperator. Um, And so there's sort of the big giant question mark of what does a proactive cooperator mean? You know, usually that means you're not just sitting down with the bureau to sort of talk about what's in your head and you're sort of give your your accounts of the event. You're in some way helping law enforcement develop their case. So either, um, you know, develop new information and, and uh, you know, t- people have been t- talking about, you know, wearing a wire and, you know, was he on phone calls or, or doing other things to, um, to hey, get into Hey, Carter, cushion. you remember that time <laughs> that I told you about? <laughs> yeah. Wasn't that the funnest remember trip Remember the time ever? I asked you if you wanted to meet Vladimir Putin and you were like, that's great? <laughs> or, or picking up the phone and saying, you know, uh, uh, I, the FBI uh, interviewed me. I think I'm in a lot of trouble. What should I do? And soliciting the kind of advice from people who might still be in the White House or on the campaign. Or, hey, Paul, do you have a million dollars in rugs that I can sell to pay my legal fees? <laughs> uh, right. So this is I think this is the other big sort of looming question of, OK, um, I, I would be pretty surprised if, you know, Mueller had people wired up walking around the West Wing. Right. But. What is the nature of the cooperation that's been given? Now it does look like um, Sam Clovis maybe has been cooperating as well. Uh, he'd been called to the grand jury. Now uh, they it's pretty clear Mueller Clovis was... Clovis being the guy who brought Papadopoulos and Page in. Exactly. Now the the nominee to lead USDA, uh, sort of a senior uh, uh, Trump campaign official. Uh, so there's been reports both that he met with Mueller's team and that he appeared before the grand jury. Um, now Mueller has clearly used the grand jury as sort of an uh, quasi-intimidation intimidation tactic like related to Paul Manafort's spokesperson and other right he used it to actually force people to talk who didn't want to mm-hmm. um, but it also might indicate that look they're looking to to nail down testimony from somebody that they don't know is necessarily reliable or lock something in or or be part of this cooperation so if I was in Trump world right now I would certainly be looking around at everybody else and thinking who cut a deal early? I mean, it really is. There's right. a limited number of it's treats like, here. First to get them, and, the ones and who remember are going too to that, like when the FBI went to talk to Papadopoulos in January, it already knew about his relationship and communications with Professor Mifsud. So, I mean, it's not like they're going into asking these people without to talk to these people without any questions already in mind or potentially even any evidence already in hand. Right. right? I I think Susan's point about the sort of you know, if you ever played assassin on your college campus, that's kind of the game that's going on among the current yeah. and former Trump people right now. And with I water think guns. with water guns, with with water guns, and it's and it's really really interesting to see how it plays out and to what extent Mueller is able to shape that game in very deliberate and targeted ways using the information that is being released in these in these court documents, I think is an interesting question. But there's another <clears throat> piece of this that. I mean, as we've discussed a bunch of times on the podcast, the ultimate um, fate of Donald Trump, to the extent that he gets more deeply mired in this investigation, it's a political question at the end of the day, not just a legal question. And I find it really, really interesting that last week, Trump his political allies inside and outside government were all geared up on two things, impugning Mueller's credibility and objectivity 
and trying to gin up this uranium deal controversy about Hillary Clinton in a sort of what about Hillary kind of way. Um, I think that the latter is still kind of shooting around, but the Mueller credibility argument seems to have faded pretty quickly. And it brings me back to the question of Congress. Where is Congress? Where are congressional Republicans? Um, and to what extent uh, is, a, is a GOP wall of support so far in Congress for President Trump starting to crumble? We talked about this last week with a few, you know, very prominent defections from Jeff Flake and John McCain and Bob Corker. But on the House side, you know, so far, this wall seems to be holding. Um, but they are not, they, there are two things that are really notable. One is none of them are pushing back on these indictments the way the White House is. They're just saying, I don't want to talk about it. I want to talk about tax reform. And the other thing is there are voices um, among Hill Republicans, including on House side, saying, no, don't fire Mueller. And, you know, we, we're supporting this investigation and this investigation has to proceed no matter where it leads. And I think that those are two interesting indicators of kind of the limits of Republican congressional support for the president that he really can't afford to go after Mueller. They're not going to back him up on that. And that really all these guys want to do is pass tax reform. And if they can't get that done, it's not clear what they, what they see they can get out of this guy anymore. Right. Right. Okay. Well, more to come for sure. Um, So let's talk about our third topic. Uh, on Tuesday night in New York, a 29-year-old man of Uzbek origin, Saifulo Saipov, I hope I'm not mispronouncing the name, uh, drove a truck onto a jogging path in lower Manhattan, uh, killing eight people and injuring several others. We've seen, obviously, this variety of attack before. We saw a similar attack recently in Times Square. Of course, there was the one in Nice. Um, this was immediately called an act of terrorism by the authorities and uh, presumably the FBI is obviously they are investigating this now. Um, so we don't know a lot of details about it, but one of the things that stood out to me uh, initially about this was was his origin um, coming from Uzbekistan. He had been in the country, I think, eight years legally. You mean he wasn't a chatty and five-year-old? <clears throat> he was not a chatty and five-year-old. And if he was, we sure would have caught him uh, <laughs> on the way in. Uh, of course, as Ben's alluding, Uzbekistan not on the list of countries that are extreme subject to the quote-unquote extreme vetting measures. Um, the super-duper extreme vetting measures indeed. now. The double of this morning. Yeah. Um, but is an area uh, that has been identified uh, by experts uh, as a potential source of these kinds of individuals. So in 2015, actually, the International Crisis Group warned that a growing number of Central Asians were traveling to the Middle East to support or fight for ISIS. Uh, in the words of the report, prompted in part by political marginalization and bleak economic prospects that characterize, characterize their post-Soviet region. Um, so not to overgeneralize here, it is not as if everyone in Uzbekistan is dying to get out and come attack the West. But tomorrow, I mean, it does seem like there is a particular issue that's going to be, you know, that we should probably be focusing on with this region and maybe Uzbekistan in particular. But it doesn't necessarily seem like our policies are, A, geared towards doing that right now. But there's also other reasons we can't necessarily clamp down too hard on Uzbekistan, right? Yeah, so it's it's interesting to contemplate. And first of all, this is one individual. He's been in the country for eight years, so we shouldn't sort of overstate right. the significance. It certainly isn't you know, evidence of any kind of broad trend in a threat against the U.S. homeland. But when we think about um, radicalized individuals or even organized jihadi groups from uh, Central Asia, um, there is a real issue, 
uh, a lot of foreign fighters in Syria and Iraq have come from the former Soviet Union um, and from the Caucasus from inside Russia. In fact, there's been, you know, some sort of somewhat snarky speculation that um, that the Russians are very happy to have these guys fighting in Syria and Iraq rather than closer to the Russian homeland. Um, but there's no question that radicalized um individuals from the former Soviet Union, that's a common concern between Russia and the United States, which is, you know, one interesting thing about this. Um, and so if the Trump administration wants to, you know, try to uh, come closer to Russia on counterterrorism cooperation or make nice noises about Russia, this actually gives them an opportunity to do this in terms of facing a common threat. But the the other interesting dimension here is that it is Uzbekistan. And uh, for all of Trump's fixation with vetting people coming into the United States from other countries, you would think that his natural inclination would now be to throw Uzbekistan on the list of nasty countries we don't take people from. Um, there's already been some fallout from uh, including Chad on the latest travel ban list. Chad was an important base for U.S. operations in uh, in the Sahel, in Africa, uh, in fighting groups like Boko Haram and groups um, affiliated with al-Qaeda and the Islamic Maghreb. Um, Uzbekistan is a very important uh, partner in our war in Afghanistan, which Trump has just decided not only to continue, but to slightly scale up. Uh, and uh, when under the Obama administration, there were some increased tensions with Uzbekistan. At one point, they threatened to cut off our supply lines into Afghanistan, and we backed down. So this is not a country that I think the Trump administration can afford to uh alienate for the sake of cheap domestic political score point scoring and uh, we'll have to see how they decide to play it yeah i mean um one of the challenges and i, and I think one of the things that people are going to start focusing on more and more is sort of the uh the prevalence or advent of these vehicular attacks um and sort of it combined with individuals who you know, proclaim allegiance to ISIS but may or may not have, have sort of bona fide ties to a designated foreign terrorist organization. You know, look, there are, uh, there are sort of two points at which you can uh, identify a threat. And one is if somebody is in communication with particular types of people, you know, you know the rough world of who the bad guys are. And so you can try and uh, use those connections, you know, right, th those kinds of uh, communications communications to identify the group of people who you want to be monitoring more closely. And then the other is, you know, sort of getting access to the instrumentalities of a crime. So, you know, you aren't allowed to go and buy a bunch of fertilizer without, you know, ending up on somebody's list, um, you know, sort of uh, to some extent, although certainly uh, not nearly enough, you know, buying large amounts of firearms <clears throat> might trigger sort of heightened scrutiny. Um, we, what we have with sort of this, this combination of features is potentially both the combination of somebody who might not have actually been in communication, might not have even necessarily been visiting the websites or, or, or uh, engaging in the behavior that might indicate that kind of radicalization, paired with something where there's almost no barrier to entry whatsoever, just the ability to get in a car. And so that is, it's kind of the, the next phase of a really, really profound law enforcement challenge and one in which they're going to have to be candid about, look, these are there's a very, very limited number of tools here in order to sort of potentially prevent this stuff. You think on on that issue of tools, does this will this figure this event figure it all into the Section seven hundred two debate that's going on now, or is, <laughs> is, is this would that not have been 
sort of a, a, a useful mechanism here. So um, I can't imagine the intelligence <clears throat> community is going to use this in the Section 702 debate because this is an ongoing investigation. And I don't think that they're going to put themselves in the position to even sort of come up close to the line of discussing what legal authority might have been used, what had been known. Um, but, you know, this is a pretty good example of uh, why it's a good idea for the FBI to be able to search all databases simultaneously, right? And so I do think that particularly members of Congress that are going to be pushing for things like clean, reauth clean reauthorization, pushing back against bills that are going to are going to try and sort of uh, reconstruct the wall or uh, or require a warrant for all U.S. persons and somebody you know a lawful permanent resident would fall within that U.S. persons. They're going to be using this kind of stuff as saying, "Hey, look, here's an example of a, a period in time in which if the FBI was investigating someone for domestic violence or other sorts of, of charges, you would really, really want them to have this this dot to know that there was the existence of, of mm. potentially 702 material. I don't know if anyone will take up that baton, but it, it's kind of it's there for them. So I actually I, I would go a little further uh, and to say uh, this person could have done nothing to more pull the rug out from under uh, 702 reformist sentiment than conducting a terrorist attack in the couple of months leading up to uh, reauthorization. Uh, you know, nobody will even need to talk about it or demagogue it. It will just be in the backs of people's minds. And, uh, and I think that is a lot of kind of conditioning the 702 battlefield, which is just you know, what are people anxious about? Are people fundamentally anxious at a, at a given moment about government surveillance authorities? Or are they fundamentally anxious about the government not having enough power to stop bad guys from doing bad things? By coincidence, uh, as part of the public opinion uh, on National Security Project that uh, uh, Mika Oyang at Third Way and Ben Freeman at Third Way and I have been doing on Lawfare uh, with Google, um, uh, we ran a bunch of 702 and comfort level with exec, uh, with with uh, intelligence authorities questions uh, last week or over the weekend, so before the attack. And, you know, the broad answer to the question is that people are pretty comfortable with these authorities. And, you know, to the extent that they're not comfortable with them, they're, uh, they're, as uncomfortable with their being insufficiently robust as they are with their being too robust. Mm. And so you blow up or kill a bunch of people in New York and all of a sudden, you know, you can really change the legislative landscape. Well, I, I think the other thing, you know, the, just the, the broader challenge here is that, look, it's New York. It's incredibly symbolic. As Susan pointed out, the means of this attack is something that's so widely available. It's impossible to imagine how one, like it's a Home Depot truck. Everybody can rent a Home Depot truck, right? Um, and so you can think about all the preventive measures possible, but um, but it's hard to imagine that this could easily have been prevented without specific knowledge of the individual and his state of mind right. or his intent. And so it takes us back to that broader set of questions about homeland defense, about what are we willing to do as a society in terms of constraining our own way of life in order to um, marginally reduce the 
possibility of a certain kind of attack, the frequency of which we can't necessarily predict. Um, and and I, you know, I think it's interesting in a way that this is in New York because New York is kind of the symbol of uh, do what you want and we're resilient and we're going to go on about our lives and screw you. You know, they went ahead and had the Halloween parade today. Um, and so I think that New York City in a way represents one pole of that debate. Uh, but the president and his political base represent another. Yeah. All right, let's move on to object lessons. Uh, I will share mine first. Uh, scary times for reporters out there. Uh, Especially involved. if they visit Shane Harris's house for Halloween. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> uh, and my husband and I have had to take some proactive measures uh, at security. Measures. Proactive Active. cooperation. Proactive cooperation for our security. So we have hired a couple of new security guards <laughs> and I brought nice. their picture here. How much did those suits cost, Shane? <laughs> they, they look limber, those two. They are, they are. These are our two <laughs> our two new additions to the family, uh, which are a pair of uh, uh, plastic skeletons that I snatched up on a trip to Home Depot. Have you named them? Uh, we just think that they're us because we dressed them in suits and they look <laughs> like it's me and Joe like hanging out at the Cosmos Club having a martini. <laughs> <laughs> with, um, with or without a tie? Uh, well, they actually, well, these both have ties on oh, because, there you know, you go. They but these two guys, the and we'll put a picture on the website, uh, of course, uh, were a big hit last night as they sat up on the stoop and we greeted uh, trick-or-treaters, of which we get a ton in Bloomingdale. It's great. Uh, so I think these are, these are, um, these are a staple. I don't think they'll come out for like Christmas and other holidays, but they will definitely reappear uh, in some form of costume, probably not suits and blazers next year. I'm thinking... We want to go maybe in a different direction. We'll see. We'll see what the mood strikes. But um, we feel very protected and safe with um, Harry and Larry or whatever we're calling them. <laughs> uh, other objects? So mine is also a Halloween-themed one. Um, and it is a tweet from Chris Painter, who is the former top cyber diplomat uh, at the State Department, who's recently stepped down. Um, and in the tradition of all uh, former Obama national security officials letting loose on Twitter shared his, um, quote, simple, cheap, but elegant Halloween costume, which is just a picture of his pocket with a little wire hanging out that he calls, why, yes, I am wearing a wire. <laughs> <laughs> Very excellent. Excellent. I have three objects. Oh, boy. Uh, for those of you who are Baby Cannon fans, uh, you will be pleased to, you may have seen on Twitter that uh, that the folks at Mini Cannon Tech, uh, whose products I wholeheartedly endorse. Even uh, though they don't sponsor Rational Security. Well, they sponsor Rational Security in the form of Baby Cannons. <laughs> and this weekend, uh, uh, a An package, in-kind contribution. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> a package showed up at my house with this adorable tiny baby cannon that's about half the size of the normal baby cannons, which are themselves pretty small. And the, the tiny baby cannon only shoots BBs. Um, and, uh, and so has, has augmented uh, to three, the, the larger cannonade. But then yesterday I get an email from, uh, from the touch of modern people who have been uh, – occasionally making baby cannons available and they inform me that they have shipped two new baby cannons from a different baby cannon maker to me um these i ordered some time back so we now have three new baby cannons that have shown up 
or are or are currently in shipment. And uh, fortunately, the uh, the good folks at the Brookings Studio and uh, the videography people and I have been working hard to make some new professionally shot baby cannon videos. So stay tuned. <laughs> Without the bomb squad showing up at our door. And I just have to point out that although the baby cannons are very exciting and they do a, a great public service, our children at this point are wondering whether their father has a clinical obsession. <laughs> I mean, there are enough now to, to like to stage a relatively convincing mini naval battle. Yes, which I just think we should think. Well, about. I, I do think you we know need, a, we need a, baby a, ship, a, to a do plastic that. boat <laughs> that we could put all the baby cannons on, and you know. I think I have a float. bath toy. Like yeah, a exactly. could right, probably. Right. Uh, I think, think it's really time. It's got to happen. I will look forward to that. Uh, but for now, that's the end of our podcast today. Rational Security is, of course, a production of Lawfare. You can find our show archive still at SpaghettiOnTheWallProductions.com. Right? Yeah, we will move it at some point we'll when we it. get around to it. But you know where to find it and go see pictures of my new security guards. <laughs> you can follow us on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. Please, whenever you download the podcast, give us a nice review and a, uh, and a five-star rating if you're Be- down with it. it because really we're not sponsored this week by Indochino. <laughs> yeah, no, Indochino. We got rugs to buy, guys. Yeah. I, got, I got so much <laughs> rugs to buy. By the way, the movie Brewster's Millions should have been my object lesson. <laughs> oh, there you I spent go. $10 million in a week. Paul Manafort could have done it. Um, our audio engineer is Matthew Kahn. Our show is produced and edited by Jen Patia. The music is performed this week by Paul Manafort and the Very Happy Rug Merchants. Excellent. <laughs> Sophia Yan actually performs our music, and I'm sure she also is a great bargain rug shopper because she has many talents. On behalf of my good friends Susan Hennessy, Ben Wittes, and Tamara Kaufman Wittes, I'm Shane Harris. We'll talk to you next week, and thanks for listening. <laughs>